Hi folks, and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Check podcast. You know what I'm about to say, and I know you don't want to hear it, but we need your support. The Tortoise Check is really struggling at the moment to keep the lights on, mics on, and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. We've no ads, we've no sponsors, we've no corporate interests, we have no sugar daddy. We rely entirely on you to keep it going. So if you're one of the thousands of people listening, please join us. Please come on board. Please click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise It is the only way we can keep the show on the road. And it is the easiest bit of activism you can do. And we really appreciate every cent we get. There's no point sugarcoating it. We have had a terrible couple of weeks on the tortoise shack. We have thousands of additional listeners. But we're really struggling to make ends meet and keep this thing going. So if you value independent media, you have to pay for it. I'm sorry, I wish I had a different answer for you, but I do not want the Tortoise Shack to become a billboard for corporate interests, editorial control, and the type of crap that is now owned by basically two large companies in Ireland in terms of the podcast networks. And we just don't want to do that. It is not who we are, and it's not who I think you want to listen to. So do me a favor and click the link that says patreon.com forward slash Tortoise Shack. I am shutting up now. Enjoy the podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Palcast, a podcast pro- produced by Tony Groves from Ireland and brought to you by Yusuf Al Jamal and Helena Coben. Helena is joining us from Washington, D.C., and she is the president of Just Word uh, Educational. Today, I'm talking to you from Kuala Lumpur. We just uh, completed the second annual conference on Palestine studies at the Hashim Sani um, Center. And uh, it's December 1st for people joining us from different time zones. Uh, today, the so-called humanitarian pose uh, came to an end in Gaza and Israel launched yet another lethal attack against Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, Dozens of airstrikes targeted the coastal enclave once the humanitarian pose uh, came to an end and dozens of uh, Palestinians lost their lives. Um, People are still struggling, even though um, Israel claimed to allow humanitarian uh, aid and trucks to enter Gaza through the Rafah crossing, which is controlled by Egypt, giving that, you know, these humanitarian trucks um, a green light to enter as part of a prisoner swap deal with Hamas. People are still struggling to find, uh, you know, floor and fuel and gas. So the situation is still as uh, catastrophic. Today we will talk about um, international law and the situation in the West Bank and how what's happening in Gaza uh, is taking place uh, completely and in coordination with settler attacks on Palestinians in, in the West <clears throat> Bank. It's a war targeting every single Palestinian, regardless of, of where they are. Um, at the same time, Palestinians are losing, you know, hope in international law. Uh, and they do not feel that international bodies are doing enough to help them. Uh, we've seen a visit, a secret visit that was revealed by the uh, prosecutor of the ICC to Israel. Uh, although he refused to, to visit Gaza, he only came to the Egyptian side of the Rafah crossing. And this caused uh, anger among Palestinians, especially human rights workers. So we're going to talk about this. Helena, welcome to the show again. And I'm very glad to have you um, joining us uh, to to this show again. Well, it's very timely to have this conversation today. And especially I'm looking forward to hearing from the guests. Maybe, um, Yusuf, you could tell us a bit more about our guests because it's really a great opportunity to have this conversation. I was in New York on Wednesday for the International Day of Solidarity with the Palestinian people. And obviously, the international law situation was top of mind, but also the need for the Security Council to take robust action and somehow to get around the the problem of the US veto. 
Yes, of course. You know, the uh, UN is not doing enough to help Palestinians. and We need more than a humanitarian post. We need even more than a ceasefire. We need a reconstruction of Gaza. And we re- also need accountability for war crimes committed in, in Gaza. Um, I'm very delighted today to have Baha Hello from Bethlehem. He's an activist and educator on, on Palestine. Um, we are also joined by uh, Saul uh, Takahashi. He's a Japanese lawyer and he served as the deputy head of uh, the office of the UN Human Rights Agency in, in Palestine. So we, both of our guests have uh, an immense experience and knowledge about what's happening in Palestine, including um, in the West Bank uh, and Gaza. Uh, I'm very delighted to, to have them. I'll start with, with Baha. Uh, how is the situation in, in the West Bank today in light of what is happening in Gaza? Did it change? Um, when, when it comes to uh, the occupied West Bank, you know, like Palestinians in the occupied West Bank are subject to an Israeli military rule. Underneath that military rule, there is like a Palestinian authority that can barely uh, provide protection to itself and its own members, let alone provide protection to Palestinian civilians. Uh, the Israeli army is uh, loading its uh, um, uh, prisons with more than 3,200 kidnapped Palestinians ever since um, uh, October 7th because they uh, want to make sure that the preparation for any future like prisoners uh, swap, they will have a higher number of, of Palestinian prisoners. Most of those uh, people have been arrested because there is a file on them or they were sentenced in Israeli military court or have been through the Israeli military court system uh, before. The uh, reality in the occupied West Bank now can be described by what a friend from Gaza once described it. Uh, when he was visiting, he was like, Israel have managed to uh, turn the residential areas of Palestinians throughout the, the West Bank into mini Gazas. And that actually makes sense because one of the policies the State of Israel have been uh, maintaining, creating, and operating in the occupied West Bank is to destroy infrastructure for Palestinian communities, leaving one way in and out. So you can lock up an entire Palestinian community, uh, Area A or Area B, by an, a minimum number of Israeli soldiers. Now we have more than 620 uh, Israeli, uh, uh, let's say, military checkpoints that are operating within the uh, territory of the West Bank, maintaining further division and separation of Palestinians from one uh, one another. Uh with all this mess, uh, there is um, a practiced uh, form of terror carried out by uh, emboldened, emboldened, like typical Israelis who live in the occupied West Bank, settlers who want to seize the moment that all the attention is uh, focused on the Israeli genocide in Gaza, so we can go on terrorize people, steal land, destroy uh olive groves, murder Palestinians, lynch Palestinians, and so on. On top of that, you have Israeli military operations that have never stopped actually targeting also Palestinian refugees communities. Please remember that uh, more than 70% of the residents who are under the bombardment in Gaza are Palestinian refugees. Uh, in the occupied West Bank, if you can, if you want to make a sense of for Israeli criminal behavior is being carried out or what it is it has been targeting is primarily Palestinian refugees camps also in the occupied West Bank. Um, it would not be with a higher volume because in the occupied West Bank, out of 3.3 million Palestinians, you have 30% of the population being Palestinian refugees, while in Gaza it's more than 70%. So the refugees communities in the occupied West Bank are also being targeted. Janine refugees camp have been like destroyed completely. Uh, the infrastructure is completely destroyed. Uh, tens of Palestinians have been murdered by Israeli military operations. The same kind of savagery you see in Gaza where we target hospitals. The same savagery is being carried out in Janine refugees camp and Tulkarim refugees camp, uh, Balata refugees camps. Uh, so what we have is a mess that is carried out by the state of Israel. 
do remember also that the occupied West Bank was not included in the truce. So uh, while the Israeli army, uh, you know, put hold on its criminal behavior for a few days in Gaza, they increased their criminal behavior in the occupied West Bank. All of that being done while a Palestinian authority uh, is just watching and trying to do what it can, what it it's capable of doing, which is issuing statements, and that's about it. Thank, thank you, Baha. Um, you know, the situation is bad in the West Bank. It has always been bad for Palestinians in Gaza and the West Bank. In Gaza today, we have a genocide, and Palestinians do not feel satisfied with the actions of the international community and international law. They feel like the UN, the ICC, are not doing enough uh, to end the, the genocide. Do you think that Palestinians have the right to, to be you know, frustrated? Well, yeah, of course. I mean, I mean, if they should be frustrated. They should be angry. I'm not Palestinian, and I'm frustrated, and I'm angry. And, of course, one of my former colleagues, uh, the head of the UN Human Rights Agency in New York, uh, resigned quite early on into this uh, genocide in Gaza, it resigned in disgust, uh, precisely because the UN wasn't fulfilling its purpose, wasn't doing what it was really established to do, and that is to stop genocide from happening again. You know, um, the whole mantra of the Holocaust is never again, uh, but never again has to mean never again for anybody, not just for, uh, you know, the people who are victimized by the Holocaust in, uh, during World War II, uh, but that's not taking place. And look, I mean, you know, we have a system of international law and, and the laws themselves are, are you know, neutral and, and, you know, commendable and, and you know, Good. I mean, I'm an international lawyer and I believe in international law, of course. But one of the fundamental problems with international law, the system that we have now, is that it's up to uh, the states to implement and to enforce international. Really, there is no sort of overarching enforcement mechanism. Like if, um, you know, in any, in most countries, like in Malaysia, if you commit a crime, then the Malaysian police will come after you and you'd be arrested. And that's how the whole system works. But, uh, you know, we don't have that um, in the international arena. Um, we just have, well, we have one superpower that claim, you know, calls itself the, the policeman of the world and invades yes. countries and bombs them to kingdom come. But, you know, we don't have any sort of legitimate overarching police force. And that is one of the real serious problems. I think you mentioned the Security Council when we started. Um, of course, the Security Council is, is, well, I mean, it's a scandal. I mean, it's what the world looked like in 1945. It's not what the world looks like now in any way, shape, or form. And I, nobody, you know, nobody who has anything to do with this <laughs> believes that the Security Council is just and that the structure of, you know, these UN structures are proper and just and, you know, fit for purpose and, and that they are, they, they should remain the same. Nobody thinks that except presumably the governments of the P5, the permanent five, uh, the permanent five uh, uh, countries on the Security Council who have the veto. But besides that, you know, besides them, nobody uh, in their right mind would believe this to be okay. But the problem is that those uh, permanent five members of the Security Council, each one of them has veto power on any kind of reform that, you know, we could do. Now, with the International Criminal Court, you know, the ICC is, is, is independent of that structure. And in fact, the United States, uh, which is, of course, you know, Israel's main backer in its, in its evil doings, is not even a member of the ICC. Neither is it. So, you know, the U.S. does not wield the same kind of direct power that it does in other UN agencies or UN structures. It does not have veto power. It, it does not, because it's not a member, it, it doesn't fund anything. So we can't like, you know, say, okay, if, you know, if you're going to be nice to the Palestinians, we're just going to stop, you're, we're just going to stop funding and giving you money. Like they did, for example, with, uh, UNESCO when I was there in, in Palestine. But of course, the US is the preeminent world power and it has all these kind of avenues to exert pressure. Um, on the ICC and on all other international agencies. And, and, you know, the, 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 how the ICC has, has uh, functioned, you know, it has been really, it's been a scandal, really, <laughs> you know, vis-a-vis -vis Palestine and the double standards 
between how it's, you know, what it's done with the Ukraine, i.e. opened an investigation literally in four days, and uh, then, you know, issuing indictments already after 11 months, versus what is some Palestine, years and years of of, of trying to weasel out of everything, you know, actually having to conduct an investigation. Finally, after years and years of pushing and pressuring and kicking and screaming, uh, finally they start open investigation. But you know, as you as you mentioned, I mean, they they really haven't done anything on the Palestine file, and that's you know that is really uh, really a problem. It's a problem for, of course, the Palestinian people first and foremost, but it's also a problem you know for the entire world because you know we have. Um, this sort of structure of international law and, and it's it's basically losing any sort of credibility that um, you know it might have had. So, um, Saul, I have a question about the Genocide Convention because the Genocide Convention is something that a lot of governments, including our government here in the United States, are a part of, and it the gen- so th- that makes it a little different from the ICC or from. You know, other instruments definitely from, d- different from the Security Council, where the U.S. has a veto. Under the Genocide Convention, m- states that are parties to the convention are obligated to intervene to prevent and 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 end genocides. So, th- is that a way that we can actually go forward? In this country, here in the United States, I know it, a lot of people are saying, you know. It's really important to name this thing as a genocide. What is your view? Well, I mean, I think it's important to call a spade a spade and to call this a genocide because that's what it is. And the genocide, you know, certainly in my opinion, has not started. It's not something which just started on 7th of October. It's not something which started in 2007 when, you know, Israel started its blockade in Gaza. Frankly, it started, it's, it's something which has started in 1948 and it's never ended. The Nakba has never ended. But, you know, certainly what we're seeing now is really the, the most sort of extreme manifestation, sort of the accumulation of years and years of this genocidal process. And it should be called a genocide. I mean, I think it's very clear. You know, there is, you know, there, there's certain debates in academic circles about, you know, forced displacement versus genocide. And, you know, can we really call this genocidal intent and all this kind of thing? But there's really splitting hairs. And if you look at it over the years and over the decades, as a cumulative process, really what it is, is is a genocide. And I, yes, I do think it's important to, to call a spade a spade. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that, uh, you know, I, look, the, the, the United States in particular and the other Western countries as a whole have been largely, you know, reluctant to call, they, they didn't want to call the Bosnia, Bosnia genocide, they didn't want to call Rwanda genocide, and, you know, we're seeing this again now. Obviously, it's even worse now because they even, they're supporting the perpetrators of genocide in a very, very blatant way. But the other thing is, like you mentioned, if we were to call it a genocide, that would trigger, you know, if not a legal, but certainly a moral obligation on all governments to do something. And this is why they don't want to do it. You know, the whole term ethnic cleansing was basically created during the Yugoslavia genocide so that they could get out of calling it a genocide and that they could get out of, you know, having to actually do anything about it, right? So, you know, this is, this is you know, the, the kind of resistance that I believe we are facing. But yes, it is definitely important to call a spade a spade and to determine a genocide. And more and more, I think, you know, the world is really coming around to this. Um, the, you know, the reports from Amnesty International and the other org- human rights watch, Betselem, um, you know, recognizing Israel as an apartheid, operating an apartheid system. This really, you know, put into mainstream into the mainstream, the fact that, you know, Israel is, a, is an apartheid state. And it became, you know, the calling Israel apartheid state, uh, has entered the discourse, mainstream discourse, if you like. And I think that's something we should also do with genocide because it's very clear to me. Thanks. Can I can I just make one um, observation? Just, just, Baha, you made a point earlier about the number of arrests ramping up in order to increase the ability for the prisoner exchange. I, I, I'd be aware that a lot of listeners in in Ireland are going to listen to this. wouldn't be wouldn't sort of kind of grasp that that this is something that they 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 did to make it to make this uh, something that they, that they could use later on. Can you explain why that's a tactic now and how how people how it's been used weaponized effectively 
um, considering now this morning the bombs are falling again because the pass uh, the prisoner hostage exchange deal has fallen over. So you might give us a little bit of uh, detail about why they've weaponized that for so long. Well, the the state of Israel like uh, uh, uses the arrest. Uh, uh, do remember, the state of Israel has uh, nearly one thousand six hundred sixty-five military orders uh, operating the uh, the Israeli military system in the occupied West Bank. So you can actually arrest any Palestinian resident in the, of the West Bank above the age of fourteen for breaking any of those uh, one thousand six hundred sixty-five military order. Uh, it's uh, in the end of the day, it's going to be a bargaining chip. Do remember that. Arrest is used as a form of uh, punishment, intimidation, and terrorizing of Palestinians to prevent them from expressing any rejection of Israeli criminal behavior in the occupied West Bank. Uh, and it's very intimidating because many people are really scared of that, uh, um, like, the consequences. They worry a lot about, like, even uh, clicking a like or a Facebook comment because who knows who is watching and uh, and so on. But in the political uh, game, of course, the blood of Palestinians have always been exploited for Israeli uh, political system. You can uh, see that pattern from 1948, like the times of a war criminal called David Ben-Gurion came to fame after mur- being taken responsibility of murdering nearly 10,000 Palestinians over a period of 20 months. But the Palestinian blood have always been uh, a very important important bargaining chip. Now, uh, Ben Gavir, the Israeli Minister of Internal Affairs, like he's responsible for Palestinian prisoners, and he's been like enjoying his savage behavior towards Palestinians, lynching Palestinians or mistreating Palestinians, giving orders to beat up Palestinian prisoners. Like uh, so far, I think five Palestinians were like murdered in Israeli jails because of Israeli savages and guard and stewards. In, uh, in there. Also, I need to pay your attention to like one. I, I don't know. Like many people mistake the savagery of the state of Israel for being savage, period. But the state of Israel is redefining savagery, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, during like, I don't know if you would call like the genocides carried out anywhere like against Native Americans or Native people in Australia and so on to be a form of savagery. But those savages who committed them, they either left the bodies or buried the bodies in mass graves. There is a practice uh, where the state of Israel actually holds dead bodies. You know, there is a morgue, there is more than 140 uh, Palestinian dead bodies that are thrown in a freezer being put there uh, under like minus 40 degrees and the state of Israel like keeps those bodies, you know? It's like you arrest Palestinians by subjecting them to different uh, apartheid practices. So every Palestinian community is like an open-air prison. And then you kidnap a Palestinian from that open-air prison, you lock him up in a closed-air prison, and if he dies, you take the body and you throw it in a morgue, you know? Those like practices like show one thing that the state of Israel has actually redefined the cruelty of uh, of savages we know we, we know about. I, so, can like, I can I just you know, sorry Helen? Like, I want to make a point on that because what that means to for listeners is they've often made people even after death fulfill their sentence. If they were sentenced yeah. for, if they died five years during the 10 year sentence, they keep the body for an additional five years. And, and again, for an Irish audience, we had internment. We know what internment was for, for, for our, our citizens who were arrested and, and put in internment camps without charge. They call it administrative detention. So, so. You know, it's it's so well. So, so as an English person, I'm very familiar with the fact that it's the English who defined all these policies. You know, whether in Kenya or in Ireland or in Palestine, and here in the United States, or like Turtle true. Island, as we might say, they took thousands of the the 
mortal remains, the bodies of native peoples and put them in, you know, so-called museums to study them. They, they stole them from their people. And there is now just now, you know, beginning a, a process of returning the bodies. So a, another point you made, Baha, was about the Israelis having arrested, detained additional thousands, you said 3,000 from the West Bank since October 7th. We should also not forget that they have detained unknown hundreds of people from Gaza, specifically at this checkpoint that they had established right. between North Gaza and South Gaza, when they're taking people from there into the Nakab, which mm -hmm. is quite against international law. And, you know, nobody knows how many of these, these men there are, mainly men, I think, or, or their situation. So, you know, it, you're right about redefining savagery in a sense. And I do want to just, if, if I may, if I could just sort of jump in about the arrests that take place in the West Bank, predominantly the West Bank, and that includes East Jerusalem, by the way. Um, you know, one thing that I think it's important to stress is that, you know, when people uh, outside uh, of Palestine, people in the West mainly, you know, they, they read these media reports about Israeli prisoners and, and Palestinians detained and arrested and all this kind of thing. It, it doesn't, you know, it's not conveyed to that the truth isn't conveyed to them, namely that this is not, these arrests do, do not take place on the basis of any kind of legitimate, like terrorist-based offense or terrorist-based legislation or anything. You know, I mean, the vast majority, I would say, of these arrests are just completely bogus. I mean, they come in in the middle of the night. They drag little children out of their homes, you know, beat them up and take them to prison. This has nothing to do with terrorism. And, you know, not just the children, but, you know, the vast majority of these arrests have absolutely nothing to do with any kind of legitimate reason. You mentioned administrative detention. That's a, that's a small part of it. It's an important part of it, but it's a small part of it. But, you know, administrative detention is, is the system under which Israelis can basically haul anybody in on the basis that they may be a security risk. They don't have to present evidence. There's no serious trial. None of these trials are serious in any way, shape, or form. But in administrative detention, they don't even have to pretend. And they, this can be, you know, they can be uh, in this administrative detention for six months at a time, and they can renew it indefinitely, forever. And this, you know, having studied human rights law, this is a, a textbook example of what we call arbitrary detention. This is a textbook example of, of you know, detention without any kind of legitimacy, right? And, and, and it's done for really no kind of, you know, uh, no kind of legitimate reason whatsoever. You could, you know, a Facebook, a Facebook post, you know, they, they, they demonstrated against, uh, the Israeli occupation. It goes on and on and on. And like, you know, that you threw a stone at, you threw a stone at the wall, you know, two weeks ago. We know it was you. You know, it's something like this. So it really is not, you know, it, it's, it's important to convey to people just how illegitimate the situation is, how arbitrary. Um, the power of the Israeli occupation forces is over the Palestinian people here. And these arrests, you know, are just completely bogus. And, and as, you know, Baha, as you mentioned, you know, since the 7th of October, thinking, you know, expecting these kind of deals, they've gone on these massive arrest campaigns to stock up their prison, to stock up prisoners. Many of these people are, have been arrested before and were released, and now they're just arresting them for the hell of it. They're being released, and probably they're going to be rearrested again at some point. So it's just like, you know, they have this sort of unlimited ability to, to, to stock up their prisons with prisoners. And this is, you know, it, it's a, it's violates international law on so many levels. I, I read about, uh, you know, starvation of, of prisoners. Yeah. They're not given enough food. Yeah. They're being beat, yeah. tortured. Some of them, one of them, Abu Asaf family, last time. Today we talk about starvation, starvation of Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails, torture to death. Uh, a Palestinian prisoner from Abu Asaf family was beaten to death by his Israeli jailers just because he asked them if there will be a ceasefire in, in Gaza. Uh, there are multiple witnesses, stories of prisoners who um, were freed from Israeli jails as part of these uh, prisoner swap deals. Mm -hmm. Speaking of horror inside Israeli jails, they're not allowed to go out. They're not allowed to have family visits. They rarely get mm -hmm. food. They're beaten. Um, they're not treated as human beings. 
can you share us sh- share with us some of these stories and what's happening in Israeli jail since October 7? Uh, it's, it's rather they are not treated like human beings. They are human beings that are treated by savages and animals. Uh, you should know that uh, the state of Israel like runs a propaganda game for its public for its public and uh, like the beneficiaries of Israeli criminal behavior, but also for international uh, community. So when you say three thousand two hundred Palestinians were arrested, you plant the seed that oh there are three thousand two hundred like. Uh, Troublemakers, mm, criminals, you know, yeah, yeah. or like, uh, why would they? Why, why would the only democracy in the Middle East like arrest mm. people unless they have done something wrong? Uh, so it's for the satisfaction of the public. What is happening also is that do remember, uh, Palestinian pr- prisoners were blamed for the attacks in October seventh in the sense mm. that everybody knew that uh, detaining Israeli soldiers and Israeli uh, civilians from the settlements around the Gaza Strip, uh, was only for one reason, uh, to get Palestinian prisoners released. You know, because the only, throughout history, the only time you could release a person who is sentenced to a life sentence out of Israeli jails is through uh, a prisoner's swap. The highest sentence in Israeli jail is 5,600 years, you know? So there is one Palestinian prisoner who's sentenced for 5,600 years. Like, how are you going to get him out of jail unless you have to swap him with some Israeli soldiers? Uh, the civilians, the Israeli civilians that we saw getting out of, uh, pal- like, uh, the Palestinians' detention, like, they were not mistreated the same way Palestinians are mistreated in Israeli jails. And yet... Israelis insist that they occupy the higher moral ground mm-hmm. when it comes to looking after uh, looking after prisoners. Palestinian prisoners are being punished; they are being shackled, moved, even like in a more disgusting way than the regular way that is reported upon by the Palestinian Prisoners Club, the Palestinian Damir Association mm-hmm. for. Uh, the rights of uh, prisoners of war by the Red Cross and so on, that everyone already pre-October 7th, the mistreatment of Palestinian prisoners was like very obvious. Now, the Minister of Internal Affairs have given like green light for like literally savage stewards to do whatever they want, to take off the clothes of Palestinians, to harass Palestinians, to beat them up and let them pay for Something that they have not done, actually, because they were in jail. They have nothing to do with the happenings of of October 7th. Uh, somebody also, like, mentioning, like, kind of uh, detentions and so on. The majority of the Palestinians who were detained so far are put under, under administrative de- detention. So what is administrative detention in actually practice? It's like you are held. You are not told why you are held. The judge who hands you the... Uh, The sentence has a classified file. He's not allowed to know why you are being held. Your lawyer is not allowed to know why you are being held. So it's a it's like Kafka's court once once again, except mm-hmm. that it's in real life. You don't need to to have like a dark imagination to create a situation like this. It's actually happening. Uh, our Bobby Sands, for example, Khalid uh, Adnan. Khadr Adnan did not starved himself five times for being subject to uh, administrative detention. And it's like, imagine you have to starve yourself in order to get sentenced. And many times when you get out of Israeli like uh, administrative detention, you are not told why you were being held. So you did not know what you did, and you are not being told what you did so you would avoid doing it. It's like, like I do not know what kind of... Uh, a sick mind that creates this kind of like uh, uh, behavior. Palestinian prisoners in the end of it are being subject to further torture, being uh, held responsible for uh, the attacks on uh, October 7th, and they are being treated in a form of vengeance and revenge over something that they have not done. The only crime that they have done while being in prison is being called Palestinians and 
seeing somebody who sacrificed their life to free them out of prison, you know? Uh, another thing that was actually very viral, viral is that the state of Israel went very quickly to murdering more than 6,000 Palestinians within a week. And the reason for that is just to show that we can murder more number of Palestinians than the prisoners that you are trying to release and free. So, so much of what is happening now is just like to crush the spirit of Palestinians, to destroy them, to, to see Palestinians being treated by like, you know, literally savages who are redefining like the, the, the rules of uh, genocide, the rules of apartheid, the rules of, you know, I would say European social nationalism. Uh, thank you, uh, Baha. To, to go back to Seoul quickly, mm-hmm. you know, Palestinians have been suffering for 75 years. And the immense suffering of Palestinians in Gaza, but also in the West Bank since October 7, is obvious and clear to, to, to everyone. Yet the general prosecutor of the ICC decided to visit Israel first. He visited the Egyptian side of the Rafah crossing. He did not visit Gaza. How do you see that? Like, what, what do Palestinians do to convince the ICC that they're fixing a genocide? Mm, yeah. Well, <laughs> that's a really good question. Um, I'm not so surprised he didn't visit Gaza. I mean, having been in the UN, I know how they can be about you know, security-related situations. But he, I, I definitely he should have done more, and he should have sent more of a sort of more of a message uh, that he recognizes what's going on and that he, you know, he wa- he is going to do his job. He's going to take measures. Again, uh, it's, it's, it's very dejecting as an international lawyer to see uh, the double standards that are at play here. Um, and it's not just, you know, it's, it's not just the ICC. It's, you know, the, inter- the, the, the international system as a whole. And to see how it is manipulated, in particular by you know small number of Western governments, um, and for their interests, and that's really you know, it's terrible, it's awful. But I think now it's it's so obvious for the whole world to see, um, you know. And I'm guilty of this too. So you know, I say this to myself. But you know, when we say the international community, quote unquote, you know, quite often we're we're actually only thinking about the you know the, these small. The small number of powerful yet powerful and influential Western countries, but we have almost 200 countries in the world, and you know the international community goes far, far beyond those countries. And in fact, you know we've seen um, many governments from uh, what is often called the global South, you know, express these kind of concerns and and these kind of criticisms at the governmental level. You know about these double standards and looking at you know how everybody you ran around like chickens with their heads cut off with Ukraine, and rightly so, because what happened in Ukraine is terrible. But, you know, when it comes to Palestine, all of a sudden, nothing happens. Well, far worse than nothing happens, they're siding with the perpetrators and going full throttle um, on this. So, you know, of course, there's there's been a lot of criticism from other governments. And the other thing is that, look, it's it's even within the West, even within the Western countries, as I say, you know, not obviously not, there are, there are some Western countries which are, on the right side of history, Ireland being uh, being one of them, of course. But you know, the, the 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 majority of countries in the West, even when we look at those countries, you know, we see that there's been a groundswell, of overwhelming groundswell of support for the Palestinian cause amongst the citizenry. Really, it is the governments and you know the the people in power, the ruling class, if you like. They're the ones that are really you know, supporting Israel, supporting genocide, uh, giving them weapons, giving them political support. It's really them. And they, you know, I feel it's 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 getting more and more extreme this time, because, precisely because they see that they have lost the battle. I mean, they have lost the battle for public opinion, the battle of narratives, if you like. They've, they've lost and they see it. And that's why there's, su- they're, you know, they're, they're exhibiting such a backlash against it. But this, you know, this can't go on. I mean, it really will not last. I really truly do believe that. And I think that, uh, you know, as, as citizens, you know, it, it's our job really to just keep the pressure on governments and keep the pressure on political elite to make it, to make sure that, to, you know, to pressure them into advancing the Palestinian cause. You know, with South Africa, the Western governments, 
you know, they were not interested in sanctioning their buddy South Africa for a long time. They had to be dragged into this, kicking and screaming by the citizen. And that's, I think, what needs to happen. Yeah, just on this matter of double standards, I think since uh, Henry Kissinger died yesterday, um, we could say we are in a new period of the international system since it was Henry Kissinger, with, of course, a lot of support, who actually baked into U.S. government policy ironclad support for um, hiding Israel's nuclear weapons program and for its unending occupation of, of the Palestinian territories. So we could say that today is a new day. And, you know, the global majority, definitely, which commands a lot, I mean, a much greater proportion of the world's economic power than these, you know, Western countries. So I think things are changing, but they're not changing nearly fast enough from the perspective of the Palestinians in particular and other peoples of the global south. Um, so and any thoughts on that, Baha or, or Saul? No, like, uh, finally, like, I, I do know that good people die young and evil people die very, very late. And uh, finally, like, uh, I was looking for Henry Kissinger, like, to see where he stands, and I found him dead after 100 years. Uh, but Henry Kissinger actually has, uh, like, uh, laid strong foundations for Israeli criminal behavior. Uh, in, uh, actually, uh, an Israeli author, uh, who wrote uh, booklets on the economy of the occupation, Sheer Heber, sure. uh, he mentioned to me once that uh, Henry Kissinger himself said that for every tank we give Israel for free, its neighbors buy pipe. And then I started like looking at, you know, uh, Israel's, like the United States militarization of the Middle East from the lens of what Henry Kissinger have said in that, uh, in that meeting. And I found that, oh, it fits perfectly because the state of Israel is a marketing base for, for, uh, U.S. military industry. And of course, the U.S. military industry has much more in common with Israeli savages and Israeli criminals than they would have with a free Palestinian society. So uh, those things are things that have been uh, built upon the legacy of a person like, a cute person like like Henry Kissinger. But definitely, like, um, I'm not sure if his legacy will die past after him because... You know, uh, the legacy of racism never dies. If the conditions that create that savagery remain in place, that savagery just like uh, will 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 go on and will uh, will continue. Uh, but yeah, the one thing we find always missing on um, on apartheid because. Uh, a lot of my South African friends tell me like the apartheid practice by the state of Israel is way worse mm-hmm. than what they have survived in, in South Africa. And, but it's not like uh, the methods that succeeded in South Africa can succeed. But the problem is that we are not using the same tools and methods in the sense that I, in the conference, I gave the example of shutting down the, uh, the embassy of apartheid South Africa in DC, where you're based, Helena. And I do not know why this piece of information remains like hidden. Uh, where the free South Africa movement, uh, have planned and organized like a direct action to actually shut down the embassy of apartheid South Africa against the will of the U.S. Congress and against the will of the, the White House. Um, and the way they did it was very simple. Like, uh, you go to the door of apartheid South Africa and you shut it with hundreds of people day in, day out for nearly 13 months, you know? So after those 13 months, and of course, like many people got arrested, high-profile activists got arrested in that process. But in the end of the day, that sacrifice resulted on, you know, the beginning of the collapse of apartheid in South Africa. Um, and I feel like we, 
we have tried a lot of things as a free, like as a free Palestine movement around the world. But I still do not know what needs to happen to just create that needed click to help people who are genuinely in support of freedom and equality in Palestine to to actually, like instead of saying, we have to pressure the government to actually just shut down that office. Can, um, can I make a point on, like, on it, if you don't mind, just because you mentioned Bobby Sands and you mentioned Hadar Anan. Um, the reactions were very different to the passing of both men. And we have to recall that both great men who 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 stood for you know trying to trying to create freedom for their for their countries for their people, and yet both treated very differently. And I say this as a white middle class man, um, you know, there is a difference, and the world looks at it differently. I'm a white middle class man too. <laughs> but, like I, I went to university with him. I know him. Like uh, he has blue eyes. He's beautiful. He's humble. He's as quiet as a bank can be. He's a pacifist also. Um, for, like, it, it's not trying to... Um, when I say he is like a Palestinian Bobby Sands, I, I actually mean it, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And and I just I just think, though, from... As having read the, his, 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 his writings... Uh, which affected me very deeply. I, I understand the, the 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 nature of the struggle, but I also then feel that the world, when when it happened, did not mourn in the same way, um, and did not respect in the same way. And I just, you know, so I'm just I'm just only coming in from that perspective and finding it that 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 there is a there is something to be done. There's something to be said for how we 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 do this now, but but there is also, unfortunately, we have to accept the reality that there's a hardcore in the EU. There's a hard core of people who allow people to drown in the Mediterranean because they don't look like us. There's a hard core of people um, who are willing to not do deals on on asylum, not to do like the most popular thing currently in the UK, the most popular po- popular policy by the Tory government and adopted by the Labour government should they come in is stop the boats. So there is a lot of anti immigrant anti-migrant sentiment and i do think people are unfortunately really really need to check our own biases our own prejudice and our own bigotry uh, i i'm sorry i went on a bit too long there but i just feel when you mention a great man like Heather and anan i just think you know we also have to understand from a western perspective one of the reasons we didn't mourn as much is because of those prejudices and those biases and those bigotries apologies um yeah, like uh, the, the I, I think like what you are t- touching on is something that did not like uh, white supremacy and racism of uh, normalized racism in uh, in Europe is not something that actually started today. Like you are talking about the moral values that enabled people to go and commit like genocides all over the world, and what have they learned from that they have learned to make it better to do it better and instead of like having a british person robbing the uh the resources of india or a french person robbing the natural resources of mali you have a local person who enables that from happening so this is doing colonization and colonialism better this is robbing the resources of the rest of the world better so in a way um I don't know. I feel, I feel like we we fool ourselves if we pretend that uh, the norms on that continent have been have have improved. Exactly. Exactly. So, so just from a Dublin point of view, four kilometers from where I am, there's an office that owns the that effectively owns the company that mines the coal in, in the Serhan mine in Colombia that's destroying the indigenous life for people in Colombia, and they're doing it with getting tax breaks in Dublin. And I know that's happening. We know that's happening. You're all nodding your heads, but we all look the other way because that is imperialism. That is colonialism in the new, in the new sense. So, so look again, I promise I, I'm done now. I'll let you guys do it. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, um, Tony and Beha. Uh, as we approach the end of our episode today, I would like to bring uh, three headlines from international news on, on Gaza. 
um, to, to the attention of our audience. UNICEF urge lasting ceasefire in Gaza and wants more attack would lead to carnage. Um, UN humanitarian office urges resume pause in Gaza, not war. And finally, Germany calls for continuation of humanitarian pause in Gaza. And uh, in the previous episode, we talked about the difference between humanitarian pause and uh, a ceasefire. Um, Helena, um, the uh, floor is yours again. Well, just really to say thank you, Yusuf, for hosting an amazing, like every single episode seems to get better and better. And, and I hope we can have these guests back again, either together or one at a time, because they each have a lot to say. Um, people out there, you've been listening to Palcast, a podcast on the intersection of Palestinian politics and world affairs with our great host, Dr. Yusuf Al-Jamal, and our friend Tony Groves of Tortoise Shack Media in Dublin. And today, joined by special guest Saul Takahashi, who served as deputy head of the UN's Human Rights Agency in Palestine, and the great social justice activist Baha, Baha El-Hello, a son of Bethlehem. Yusuf, Saul and Baha are with us from the Hashim Sani Center for Palestine Studies at the University of Malaya. The Palcast is a collaboration of Just World Educational and of Tortoise Shack Media, and also now with the co-sponsorship of the Hashim Sani Center. Um, Yusuf, Saul, and Baha, thank you so much. Um, we urge everybody out there to follow the Palcast on Apple or Spotify, so you can catch each new episode as soon as it drops. And please start posting great reviews for us on those platforms. Tell all your friends and networks about the Palcast too, so they can start listening. Our tagline here at Palcast is one world, one struggle. We call urgently for a complete ceasefire in Gaza and for the, for the speedy march of Palestinians to liberation. For Just World Educational, I'm Helena Carbon, and back to you, Yusuf. Thank you. Thank you very much. And thank you, Baha and Sol, for joining um, us today.